Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I have a special guest with us today. Alan Burdick is staff writer and former senior editor at The New Yorker. His writing has also appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Harper's GQ, Best American Science, and Nature Writing, among others. His first book, Out of Eden, An Odyssey of Ecological Invasion, was a National Book Award finalist and won the Overseas Press Club Award for Environmental Reporting. And his new book is Why Time Flies, a Mostly Scientific Investigation. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, anyone who listens to this show a lot knows that time is something that we flip over and over and over again, because when you're traveling or living in a new country, time slows down or speeds up based on whatever your experience is. I was going to start with the language behind the word time, but why don't we start with jet lag? Because I think that's something that everybody listening has experienced. Can you explain why jet lag is so hard on the body? Yeah, I can. And in fact, I am experiencing it at this very moment, having woken up at uh, like five o'clock to catch a flight to Seattle. So the way to think about it is in each of our cells, we have a clock and that clock ticks out a really regular 24-hour rhythm. It's not exactly the same as the 24-hour day. It's a little shorter, a little longer, depending on the cell, depending on the person. And, you know, those cells, those clocks talk together to form your kidneys and your liver. And so those organs are themselves clocks in a way, and together they beat out a rhythm. So your, your kidney is more active during the day than it is at night. And overall, your body temperature is lowest early in the morning and highest in the middle of the day. So there's this kind of series of patterns. So, I mean, another way to think of it is like a symphony. It's like there's a 24-hour symphony going on in your body. It's your liver, it's your kidneys, it's your brain, it's your stomach, all these processes. And they work in concert. Uh, They aren't all in phase, aren't all active at the same time, but it's kind of like an assembly line. You know, everybody's got their job. You human are expected to be eating, you know, roughly between 6 a.m. and 9 p.m., something like that. You know, the body just isn't really geared to be eating at two o'clock in the morning. How it metabolizes that food is quite different from how it would do so during the day. So anyway, so you got all these clocks, you got this symphony, and in and of itself, we could put you in a closet or a cave for like a couple of weeks. It would still tick out its 23 and a half or 24 and a half hour rhythm, and everything would be going fine, except that you would be falling out of phase with the actual day, right? So all these clocks speak to each other, but they need a conductor, and that conductor is this cluster of cells in your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is a word that I love. And, you know, that sort of beats out a regular rhythm that keeps everybody in line. And what it also does is it gets information through your eyeballs. It says, oh, daylight. And it uses that information to basically reset your 24-hour clock every day. It's like the clock on your car dashboard, at least on my car dashboard, you let it go for a few days and like it doesn't really tell the right time after a while. So every day you have to reset it. And that is basically what's going on with all the cells in your body, thanks to your eyes and your superchiasmatic nucleus. You know, all those clocks are basically 
in agreement about when right now is. You know, it's like, okay, we're all on the same page. Things are happening right now. Things are happening right now. Um, but then when you start crossing time zones, suddenly things get confusing. I wake up in New York and I come out here to Seattle. The sunlight regime is pretty different. My brain is thinking it's, geez, I don't even know what time it is. Three o'clock. It's three o'clock. But my body, you know, all my other cells, they, they haven't really caught up with my with where my brain is. And actually the information, um, it, it takes like a day for every time zone that you change for the information in your brain to like trickle out to your cells. So here I am and my brain is here and my suprachiasmatic nucleus is here, but it's like, you know, my liver is over Wyoming and my kidneys are over Kansas. They aren't really working as a symphony yet. And they won't for a couple of days. And you're not staying here, I assume, for a couple of days. So that means what? You'll be out of step by the time you get back? Or are you going to be close enough to New York time when you get home? I'll be here just long enough. I'm going here and then I'm going to San Francisco for a couple of days. I'll be here just long enough to adapt and then go home and start all over again. So one of the things you talk about in the book, though, are things that you can actually do on the plane to try to make it easier on yourself. Yeah. So, you know, normal days, you're walking around, all your clocks in your body are basically being set through your eyes, you know, through your suprachiasmatic nucleus. But when that input is removed, like you're on a plane and you have no idea what time it is and you're in that state for some period of hours, all your organs have their own clocks, basically. And so you can send information up the chain. And the best way to do that, actually, is to, I mean, what I do, I get on the plane this morning at, you know, 9 o'clock, and I immediately set my time, my watch, for Seattle time. And then on that time, that determines when I'm going to eat. I'm not really going to pay attention to, you know, when the flight attendants want to feed me. As quickly as I can, going to start training my liver to think, that it is in Seattle because of the various clocks in your body minus your suprachiasmatic nucleus, your, your liver is domineering, I would say. So, you know, if you can kind of get it on board. So, yeah, you start eating on your new light regime as early, as quickly as you can. So you mentioned if we were living in a cave, and part of the interesting thing of this book is that you actually looked at a guy who did live in a cave, and what happened to him? He was, what was his point? Why did he go live into a cave, move into a cave? Well, you know, he was a French guy. It wasn't entirely clear what his research agenda was. What he wanted to know, ultimately, this was a project that he began in the 60s, and he repeated it a couple of times over the next 30 years. He wanted to know what's it like, what happens to the human body if you remove it from daylight and from other social contact. You know, what's it like basically to run on your own endogenous time? And he found, at least the first time through, he was stayed in a cave in France in the 60s. His sleep cycle got kind of wonky. His circadian rhythms stayed pretty much the same all the way through. Uh, and it was his circadian rhythm that was kind of keeping him healthy, basically. But according to his own sleep-wake cycle, it seemed to him that less time actually passed than really had. I mean, there was a point at which, you know, his colleagues up top called down and said, hey, 
Michelle, it's time to come out. And he said, oh, well, no, I, you know, I haven't been down here long enough. You know, I've got another 10 days to go. No, 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 no. it's time to come, time to come out. And so he did this again in a, in a cave in Texas for like six months. And he basically, well, he didn't go nuts, but he, he came pretty close. Part of it was that his sleep cycle, which runs on a slightly different physiology than your circadian cycle, became so completely divorced from his circadian system that, yeah, it was just pretty unhealthy. Plus, he, you know, to be isolated from other people for six months is, you know, will drive anybody crazy. So, you know, I don't really think there was a lot of actual useful data that came out of that. He did, you know, he measured his body temperature every day. He, like, measured his whiskers. He did all kinds of things, but I, I don't think it really was helpful. The most devastating story being when he decides to try to capture a mouse friend to keep him company. Yeah, early on, there are all these mice down there, and he like decides to trap and kill all the mice. And then at some point, he realizes he's so lonely, and there's like one mouse left, so he's gonna he's gonna trap it. And he rigs up this little you know trap. He's gonna get it under a can, and he comes in, and sneaks up, and he closes the can over it, and then he realizes that he's actually crushed it and killed it. It, that story, I just thought, oh, no. <laughs> gosh, this poor guy. Well, we kind of started off the book talking a little bit about language and how we try to talk about time. And I think this is something that me and my co-host Tiffany have turned over and over and over again is what are we actually talking about when we're talking yeah. about time? You say that it's one of the commonly used word yeah. in the English language. It's commonly used noun in the okay. English language. Yeah, so, yeah, we, we use the word time to me to describe what turns out to be a lot of different experiences. And I learned this early on because I would go around to psychologists and neuroscientists and say, you know, what is time? And they would all say, well, what do you mean by time? Um, so there is tense, you know, understanding past, present, future, and understanding that those two things kind of go in opposite directions. There's understanding the order in which things happen, temporal sequence. There is understanding duration how long a traffic light lasts or you know your sense that oh my gosh I should that pot has been boiling it should be boiling by now I got to turn it off we as adults kind of think of those we didn't even think of those it, it just seemed like intuitive processes but they come online at different ages like you know a kid by age two will use the past and the present tense correctly but maybe not till age four do they understand really the difference between the difference between before and after. There are these really subtle concepts that get layered on as we get older, and it's not until really our teenage years that all of these experiences kind of meld into one. So, but I mean, probably the one that we most often mean when we say time is our understanding of now and the understanding that there's something happening right now that didn't happen before that's past that's memory things are going to happen those haven't happened yet but right now things are happening i mean all sorts of crazy experiments have been done over the years to actually try to measure like how long is now and what do you mean by now um but but often that that is the one thing that we're meaning when we say time yeah it is this ongoing quest people seem to have to learn to live in the present moment what do you think people mean when they say, I want to learn how to live in the present? What are they saying? Look, the hard fact about the present is you can really only do one thing in it, right? 
I mean, that's almost the definition of the present. It's a moment of awareness. It's a moment of consciousness. It's a moment in which you have a discrete perceptual experience. It's a, it's a meteorite flashing, you know, across the sky or it's a sparrow and, you know, there's a little bit, it has some duration, but there's room in there for one perceptual experience. It's often easy to be in that perceptual experience thinking about some other perceptual experience that you should have had or maybe could be having. And, you know, this one that is right in front of you is kind of being wasted. One of the concepts, I'm going to just read it, that I loved that you said, and I don't remember who you were quoting when you said this, but when you, in talking about living in the present, you brought up a thought, which I really liked, which was that the past, present, and future are not three separate things. They are all present in the mind. Yeah, yeah, that's St. Augustine. And his phrase, what he says is, there are three tenses or times. The present of past things, which we think of as memory, the present of present things, which is attention, and the present of future things, which is our expectation. What he's trying to emphasize is that really all of those experiences take place in the present. You can recall your memories, but that's not in the past. You are presently recalling your memories. You are presently looking forward to something happening. And for Augustine, he's sort of fixated on time and on on this notion of now Uh, especially because for him, he's having this dialogue with God. And for him, it's now is like the the gateway to understanding the soul and to gaining access to God. And he's got this great phrase where he says, you know, we are the self, the soul is basically stretched out between our sense of our memories and our expectation of what's going to come. And we're sort of stretched out over the present through our attention. And he says that tension, that is time. The time is basically the tension of consciousness, which I I think is just an amazing phrase. And it's something actually that William James comes to later with a very similar kind of idea. Yeah, I mean, this is what I'm talking about with your book. Before we got started, I was saying that usually I try to read the entire book before I talk to somebody. But at some point, you know, around page 80, I was like, there's no way I'm gonna do it. It's all these huge concepts. Which I guess brings me to just a fundamental question. In doing all this research and writing this book, did it clarify things for you or did it muddle how you think about time in general in your own life? Yeah, no, actually it did clarify things. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm like the best time manager (laughs) yet, although I do feel more guilty when I'm late than I used to. But I would say, you know, I did have a much more antagonistic approach to time or a much more antagonistic relationship to time. I mean, in my sort of view, time was this thing that was out there and that you could kind of choose to put on or take off or you could just kind of step away from. And I had heard the phrase, you know, oh, actually time and our sense of now, those are just social constructs as if, you know, we're sort of waving our hands dismissively. But as I began to understand all the many things that we actually mean by time, I just began (laughs) to realize, A, it's inescapable. I mean, it's it's in our cells, and it is the sum of our cells. I mean, the sum of our cells is us, and we are sort of a clock. We Each one of us is kind of a walking clock. But the thing about clocks is clocks do two things. Clock can act like a timer. It can tell you how much time has passed, 
or it can tell you the time, which is to say it can tell you when right now is. But that's only useful if you have another clock, right? So I can look at my clock and it says 3.15, but that kind of fixing of the now is only useful if I'm basically trying to synchronize with daylight. That's the context, that's the clock against which my handheld clock actually means anything, right? But we all have that experience, right? We all have clocks, we all have watches, we all have these kind of circadian rhythms where each one of us clock moving around and, and we're all trying to figure out like what, what, is, what is right now? What is right now? We're kind of asking each other that with every, with every interaction. I began to think of time as like a language and it's a language that maybe only humans speak. I mean, in terms of our awareness of it, it bends in these funny ways, but it does that to basically accommodate our social relationships, our social interactions. And, you know, at that point, it just began to seem kind of amazing to me and essential and not, not a scary thing at all. So, yeah, I certainly came out of it with a, a lot more respect for it. The scary thing being that what, when we talk about time, we are slightly talking about the fact that we're finite creatures, that we're all going to die. Yeah, well, that's the, yeah. That's, that's the that's big the, crux of it, right? That's the kicker, yeah. <laughs> that's the unfortunate fact. <laughs> I mean, one of the things you talk about is human consideration of time, but then it made me wonder what time means to something like, I washed my hands when I came to the hotel today and in there sitting by the sink was a fruit fly. And because I'd read your book, I started thinking, well, I wonder what time is to this fruit fly who's in his own, I don't know how conscious he is about anything, but, um, but you know what I mean? Like another creature and how it experiences things. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good question. And, and that's, I mean, yeah, that, that's a question I sort of came into this book with too, without really quite knowing it. You know, we operate at all, at all these different timescales simultaneously. You know, your heart beats like once a second and lightning strikes in like a hundredth of a second and, you know, computer software speaks in like nanoseconds and all these timescales. And philosophers actually since like the 16th century were kind of wondering, well, you know, what if you were really small? What if you were like a mite living on a hazelnut? And, you know, your entire life was only 30 days long. What would you make of the sun? What that series of questions is really about is consciousness. I mean, there's no question that animals, plants too, deal with time in, in a certain sense. And they certain, certainly deal with timing. I mean, you can train a dog to expect food every 30 minutes. Even if you don't give it food, it's so expecting it, you've trained it so well to understand what 30 minutes means that right before the 30 minutes comes, it starts to drool. And right afterwards, if you don't give it food, it stops drooling. You can do basically the same thing with rats, pigeons, hummingbirds. Timing is really essential to, certainly to animal life. And obviously, we all are finite creatures in that sense. Time moves in one direction. For all of us. But the question is, are those little creatures conscious of now? Right? Mm -hmm. Are they aware that there is this moment budding in front of them again and again and again? And 
I think it's kind of hard to argue that it is, at least for most animals. I mean, chimps are really good at, um, they will distract themselves. They don't like to wait any more than humans do. And, and they can delay gratification, which suggests a, a fairly complicated relationship with the present. But Augustine, William James, they basically defined now as a moment of conscious experience. Now is the volume in which we put our consciousness. Now is never empty because it is always filled with awesome sort of paraphrasing William James. And in a very real sense, now exists only because we are putting ourselves in it. We are only, you know, we're putting our conscious thoughts in it. And in that sense, in his day, in the late 19th century, there was a school of thought that thought, well, maybe time is like the stuff that we receive and that you can perceive even, even an empty moment, a moment with nothing in it. And James is like, that, that's ridiculous. There is, there is no such thing. Yeah. You examine even what seems like an empty moment and you will find us in it. You will find your own thoughts, your own thoughts changing. Maybe they're like little lights flickering on the inside of your eyelids, whatever. What you find in the moment is us, is yourself, is your consciousness. And I think to a very large degree, what we mean by now is consciousness. I, th I do really think it is basically the same concept. So in some ways, going back to the discussion of what we mean when we say we learn to live in the present more, something I've said on the show, which I moved to Rome, people say, well, what, what's the lasting effect of living there? And I say, I learned to live more fully in the moment as a part of that experience. Then, of course, reading your book, I'm like, well, what do I mean by that? Um, so maybe it is just sort of trying to be, I don't know, more aware of what's going on in the now instead of thinking like, well, in April, I have this trip scheduled. Is that what we're sort of getting at? I mean, even that's in the now, now, according to your book. So Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for organizing your time. Maximum productivity, if you will. But that's only useful if the, the sort of packages and, and cartons of time that you are setting aside and setting in neat rows are ones that when you get to them, you actually occupy, right? You're, you're going to set aside that hour. You're going to set aside that five minutes. Something's going to happen there. The point of all that arranging is so that when you get to that five minutes, you get to that hour, you don't have to think about the arranging, right? You don't have to step back. You can just be in the moment and know that is your time to do whatever it is you were planning to do. Since you're on the road right now on a book tour, do you ever get that sense when you're walking around? Let's say you are you were to leave here after we talk, walk down the street in downtown Seattle. There's all these people moving around you. Do you ever get that sense of here you are on the street seeing a bunch of things that would have been happening even if you weren't here? That you just happen to be in a different time moment? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's weird. It's weird. It is hard to get past the incredibly narcissistic feeling that things actually only exist where I exist. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's one's ego trying to make itself feel better about the fact that that's not happening. Um, um, I mean, it's sort of like a time travel in a way. If you travel to a new location, you're not traveling into a different time, but it's like you are in a way. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting, you know, in, in the 
middle of the 19th century. So, you know, there was this kind of whole conversation happening in the 16th, 17th, 18th century because largely we started using microscopes and telescopes. And we realized that the world that we see around us is just a tiny part of it. You know, there's this gigantic cosmos out there and we are just like a, like a little nut. And likewise, if you look in, into a microscope, they're just like landscapes down there. And you can just get like smaller and smaller and smaller. So you get a novel like uh, Gulliver's Travels, you know, where you go to a land of like really big people and you know, what's it like for them? And these really small people and what's it like for them? But then pretty quickly the question came up, and we were kind of talking about this earlier, well, couldn't the same be true of time? Couldn't there be like tiny time scales down there, you know, you're living it as a mite on, on this hazelnut? Or maybe your heart beats a thousand times slower than it does now, and your lifespan instead of 80 years is 80,000 years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, or it's, it's 80 million years. There was this kind of awareness that now doesn't necessarily have to be the now around us. There could, you know, the now has, could be huge, it could be really tiny, and that's sort of what goes on in the time machine. I mean, H.G. Wells is, is sort of extracting this stuff almost directly, and when you think about it, his time traveler isn't really traveling to the future. It's almost like he's occupying the same now, but he's just moving to a different place in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such big questions. I love it. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about nighttime. Okay. Um, is time different? I mean, obviously not on your clock. It's different at night. But is there something about when you wake up in the middle of the night that's different than if you were in the middle of the day? For me, yeah. I mean, there's less stimulation. And there's the solace of knowing that nobody's trying to reach me. I'm not as inclined to kind of step out of the moment and think about all the other things that I could or should be doing or that people want me to do now feels much more intimate really you know but don't you find that you do think about all those things that you have to do you have a great Tennyson quote actually I wrote it down when he was writing about one who wakes in the night he said to hear time flowing in the middle of the night and all things moving to a day of gloom (laughs) 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 it just reminded me of that anxious thinking you get sometimes at night when there's nothing that you can do you're not going to get up and write that letter you need to write or the proposal that you need to do because you ha- you sit there going go back to bed go back to bed right. yeah I mean I feel very much it's it's like I'm sort of floating and I'm also I'm lying in bed so I don't necessarily have to do anything mm-hmm. I mean it's interesting there, there used to be before the modern era and the era of electrical lights we sort of think about sleep as like, oh, did you get your eight hours of sleep? Well, it used to be that people didn't. They slept in two shifts. There was what they called the first sleep, and they'd go to bed when it got dark, and they would wake up at like midnight, you know, one o'clock in the morning, and sometimes they would just stay in bed, but a lot of times people would get up and do chores or do field work or maybe even go into town and do some stuff in town. And so there, there was this like very quiet but real kind of nightlife in that moment between first sleep and then second sleep. You know, those terms first sleep and second sleep, they don't even exist anymore because, you know, once lights came up, came along, we could stay up as late as we wanted and that, you know, the middle of the night kind of disappeared. 
What do you think about that? Do you think that we are as a people still adjusting to that thing, that expectation of stay up as late as you want, but you have to be able to sleep through? We've adjusted the clock enough. Are we still catching up? Everything is in our control now. When we go to bed, when we wake up, if we're up in the middle of the night, we can have read, do whatever. Yeah, I, I back when I was in college, I had a I had a professor who um, actually wrote a book about later about Einstein and clocks, and he's a fantastic historian. And he, and he told me that he was writing the book in the middle of the night. He would get up at two o'clock in the morning and like write until four. And I just thought that was the craziest idea. But then I thought, you know, I'm going to try that. Because otherwise I was having to, you know, get up at four in the morning and write until seven and I would feel in a big rush or I would have to kind of wait until 10 o'clock and my brain kind of quieted down and then I could work until two. But it was so much more pleasant to actually go to sleep at a normal hour and then wake up and get up and work for a while and then go back to sleep. And it was incredibly productive time and it felt like there was a whole other day in there. But yeah, I mean, I think we, look, you know, our, you can change your sleep cycle. You can stay up as late as you want, sleep as much as you want. But your circadian clocks are still working on a really strict 24-hour cycle. That's pretty hardwired in. It's hard to get around that. A lot of studies show that people who do night shift work suffer from heart disease and obesity and diabetes and what are often, you know, thought of as like meta- metabolic diseases basically at much higher rates than people who work and are awake during normal daylight hours. And that's because these people are trying to colonize a part of the day that their cells are just not engineered to occupy. One of the things I thought you said that was so interesting was that in some ways, the very moment we're born, we get separated from time to a certain degree, and then we have to reorient ourselves. And I was wondering if you could explain that. Yeah, so it's it's a circadian thing. And, um, you know, so imagine, you know, imagine a fetus developing in a womb. It's, you know, a bunch of cells. They've all got circadian clocks. It would be really great if, for the sake of the development of the fetus, all those clocks and all those cells could actually speak together and form a kind of a, a symphony and work in unison so that everything could kind of develop properly. Now, in adults, that happens because we have a functioning suprachiasmatic nucleus that is also like plugged into daylight, and it tells us how to basically synchronize to the actual day. Babies don't do that. You know, I mean, they don't seem to have that. You know, they're in the dark and the thought was always well they're just it's like this it's like the french guy in the cave right they're completely removed from daylight but strangely enough it turns out that they do actually experience a circadian rhythm that is very much in sync with the daylight and that is because they are getting information about the outside world through the placenta so their own suprachiasmatic nucleus isn't, you know, quite fully functioning, but the mom's is doing the work for them. They've got like an organized system. They kind of understand when the time of day is pretty much up until the moment they come out because the suprachiasmatic nucleus and the little channel that kind of connects it to daylight isn't really functioning well in a newborn. So they can't actually get the information from outside into all their cells. 
So it's like chaos all over again. It's like a kid with seriously bad jet lag, you know? And it takes four to six weeks for it to settle down and like figure out, like this is now, I understand what now is, and all my cells understand that this is now, and we're all on the, on the same page about that. Did having kids yourself change how you thought about time? Yeah, I mean, in the sense that, you know, my kids are 10 now, and holy cow, kids change so much, and especially when they're small. A friend of mine said it's like, when you have young kids, it's almost like you've got a terminally ill person in your house because they're there for three weeks, and then one day somebody new shows up, and they're just like, they keep appearing, they keep appearing, things keep happening, and I feel like my kids lead a thousand lives in the time that I lead one. And, you know, that's because I have two kids, so I'm getting twice as much of their of their busy lives and, you know, there's like twice as much soccer going on. Um, <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know, if, if I sort of count how much time is going by by the number of things I do and include in that count all the things they do, then it feels like an awful lot has been going on in my life. One final thing. I can think of so many other things I want to ask you, but I'm going to restrict myself and say one final thing. Another thing that we've talked about a lot on this show is why when you're traveling in a brand new spot for a week, for a month, for a year, does it seem so much more epic on a time scale? Like the days seem longer, the memories seem brighter, time seems like it took a lot longer than it does in normal life. Same thing you write a little bit about happens in traumatic situations when you get in a car accident, you fall off a high ledge or something like that. Why do we have those moments where time seems to spread way out in moments like, you know, an average day where it just seems like that day flew by and that's it? Part of it may be, you know, one theory is it's about how your neurons function. I mean, one, one notion of time which is to say your notion of of how long an event lasted, one notion of of duration is that duration is basically a measure of how efficiently your neurons are experiencing that event. If I show you a series of pictures, and they're all the same, and then I show you a new one, that new one is going to stand out, and it's going to seem like it lasted a little bit longer than the others, it seems because up to that point, your neurons like, okay, I get it, like a shoe, a shoe, a shoe. You show me like three times, four times. It just doesn't need to do as much work. And in a sense, it it's doing less work processing that event, which it has experienced before, but it's not really telling you. The truth is it seems to be lasting a little less long than the new thing. It's not so much that the new thing lasts longer, It's that the things that you know and experience a lot of, your neurons know so much about, they can like phone it in. And you experience them as lasting less long. I mean, another way to think about it is, you know, new events you kind of process in what what might be called high def and things you've experienced before you, you kind of process in standard def. Except that the truth is, the new things are the things that you are processing in standard def. There is no high def. And everything else is like a degrading standard def. It just gets worse and worse. But you you don't notice because you've seen all those things before. So is that why time flies? Since that's the title of your book? Or do you ever, is that explainable? 
It is explainable. I mean, it kind of depends on what you mean by time. Um, <laughs> right? Bringing us back to our initial um, quandary. I mean, usually what we mean by when you say time flies or time really flew by is I lost track of the time. You know, you're in a really good movie or you're at a really fun dinner party and it's two or three hours long and you come out of it and you're like, wow, that was great. I didn't, you know, time just flew by. Three hours went by and I didn't notice. It is literally, it's an expression of how little you were paying attention to the time. Whereas if you're bored and the movie's really dull or the party's really dull and you're always looking at your watch, your experience and your memories during and, and afterward of that time are of you thinking about the time. So your thinking about the time occupies much more of your memory. The unfortunate thing, though, is that what it means is time can fly while you're having fun or engaged in whatever you're doing, but you aren't going to notice it until it's over. And that's a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, but you can't really make time fly in that way. Right. Or you, can't, you can make time fly, but you're not going to know whether it's working until afterward. Putting it in a rosy way, if we say... All of a sudden, I look down, I'm 95, and my life's almost over. I could be say, well, I had a pretty good time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and there, there was a, a terrific study done, I guess, in the 80s in, in a series of geriatric homes and, and where they asked people to and, and try to kind of gauge their sense of how fast time seems to be going by, which is a really hard thing to quantify, but never mind. And what they found was the people who seemed to think that time was going by the fastest were the people who were the most occupied and the happiest. And the people who felt that time was moving the slowest tended to be more depressed and less active. Well, the book Why Time Flies, Alan Burdick, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks so much. And I will say all of that realm of discussion, maybe not all of it, but most of it came from only the first 100 pages of the book. So there's a lot more to learn if you want to find it and read it. If you want a quick link to it, just go to thebittersweetlife.net. And until next time, I'm Katie Sewell. Visit the donate page on our website, thebittersweetlife.net. All donations are reserved exclusively for the creation of audio content. Your financial support keeps us strong. Thank you.